Hello, it's great to see you again. Welcome to another podcast from MLEX, your home of regulatory news. My name is James Paniki. I'm MLEX's Asia-Pacific Senior Editor. And every week I catch up with members of our editorial team, scattered as they are around the globe, to catch up on the top stories of the moment. And we have another busy program today. In just over 10 minutes from now, Neil Rowland will walk us through his recent analysis of changes in approach to whistleblowers in the US on the part of the US Securities and Exchange Commission. It's a tricky issue. Whistleblower protection isn't just about safeguarding those who may be facing retribution. It's also about how to remunerate those who report misconduct. It's a fascinating issue, and I urge you to stick around for that one. First up, though, to the EU, and yes, what else? The General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, the bloc's landmark privacy legislation. And let's start with a very provocative question today. Does the GDPR need updating? Should it be cracked open a mere four years after it came into effect back in May 2018? Well, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But the issue of enforcement, with particular reference to cross-border enforcement, is proving rather tricky. The concerns about the GDPR have been ventilated by the European Data Protection Supervisor, and his comments are reverberating around the Union. Luckily for us, our reporters Sam Clark and Matthew Newman have been following the case and they have written a fine piece of analysis. And they join me now from, well, Matthew's in Brussels and Sam is in London. And Sam, let me put this very first question to you. Why is the supervisor talking about reforming the way that data protection rules are enforced? And what is the problem with GDPR enforcement as it stands? Uh, yes, I think a consensus has formed sort of broadly that enforcement in the big strategic cases, um, which generally relate to big tech companies, uh, is not working. Um, that's often attributed to the one-stop shop system, uh, which is where a lead regulator is assigned to cases based on where the company in question has their EU headquarters. What's wrong with that is that this has placed uh, a pretty big burden on the um, the lead regulator for big tech companies, which is the Irish Data Protection Commission. That's because all those companies, except Amazon, are based in Dublin. Whether that criticism of the Irish regulator is fair or not is, is kind of another story. But most people now agree that in relation to these big cases, at least, something needs to change. It's probably worth noting that most GDPR enforcement, the kind of humdrum everyday stuff, and in fact, even most cross-border GDPR enforcement does actually work generally as people expected. Uh, it's just the really big, the big strategic cases that aren't going quite right. Okay, so what's the the supervisor trying to achieve here? I mean, how does he want the European Data Protection Board to have a new role in GDPR enforcement? Uh, broadly, the aim is centralisation, although uh, I'm not sure he actually likes that word. Uh, but that is kind of, they, they tend to frame it as harmonization and cooperation, but ultimately we're heading towards centralization. Uh, and on that front, it's, it's worth noting that uh, the, the kind of obvious um, solution, the European Commission, that can't, that can't be used because uh, it's a fundamental right, data protection, and the enforcement of that fundamental right must be done by an independent regulator. The European Commission is not sufficiently independent. So following that, the obvious answer is the, the European Data Protection Board. And Wojciech Wierowski, the European Data Protection Supervisor, 
his suggestion is to have uh, a litigation chamber within the EDPB, within the board. Uh, and that concept, a litigation chamber, is, is kind of borrowed from the French and the Belgian national data protection authorities. Uh, and I think the idea is that it would be filled with, filled with full-time people, full-time experts in, in not just the legal experts, but also technical experts who would do enforcement work. Uh, and that would be quite a big change from how the uh, European Data Protection Board works now. At the moment, it adjudicates on enforcement done by other regulators, um, and it also produces guidance and that sort of thing. Matthew, let me bring you into the conversation now. What, in your view, are the potential roadblocks for making any changes? Well, James, we are going into uncharted territory if the EDPB is going to become some sort of centralized enforcer. Uh, It simply wasn't set up to do that. It's not its role. Uh, And as uh, we just heard from Sam, it's mainly in charge of coordinating, uh, issuing guidelines, that kind of thing. And it's not in charge of actually investigating anything. It doesn't have those kind of powers. It can't gather evidence. It can't compel companies to respond to requests for information. So it's, it's not, it doesn't have any teeth. The teeth are actually with the national data protection authorities. And the problem is that once you start talking about adding more powers, uh, we don't really know what that means. Does it mean that the actual GDPR would have to be reopened. And as, as we've discussed on many occasions, this was a landmark rule by the EU, which has kind of set the EU apart and, and been a template for many other jurisdictions to adopt rules. Um, so what would people think if only four years after it took effect, uh, the EU was uh, having second doubts, second thoughts? Like, Well, what they would think, Matthew, is that the GDPR is flawed, right? It would be seen as a defeat. Absolutely. And I think that uh, when Sam and I went to a conference a couple weeks ago with the European Data Protection Supervisor who organized the whole thing, and that feeling of, oh, well, we, it's not broken, but it could be improved. That, that was kind of the prevailing view of the European Commission. And also, um, very importantly, Didier Reinders, who's the current uh, Justice Commissioner, he's got no interest in opening up what he called the Pandora's box of the GDPR, because he knows full well what that means. And I can tell you from my own personal experience, because I was actually at the European Commission when it was proposed, it was a very heavily lobbied uh, legislation. And if you do a rethink or reopening of GDPR, you're just going to open up every single question uh, under the sun about data protection, and they simply don't want to do that. Uh, Just to clarify, Matthew, you were at the commission, working at the commission, right? <laughs> you, d- you don't mean as a journalist, you're actually working in the commission. I was working for the commission, I, and unfortunately, I was not actually drafting the uh, GDPR, though I did reread it, and I found a couple typos. <laughs> there you go. So we could, <laughs> we could have blamed you for this entire thing, uh, which we won't be able to do. Sam, I rudely interrupted you. What were you going to say? No, no, I was just going to say that, um, so Wojciech Wierowski, the, the supervisor, he said he unequivocally does not want to water down the GDPR. Um, and so th- this is the thing is, would it be worth, kind of the big question is, would it be worth them reopening the law and risking all of that, that they fought so hard for and they, in almost every 
announcement they make, they talk about the importance of these fundamental rights. Would it be worth them risking all that to get better enforcement? I think probably most people would say no. Um, but also if this enforcement really is broken, then something has to change. Now, Matthew, could the European Data Protection Board use the existing rules under GDPR to streamline cross-border investigations? Would that be an option? And if so, how would it? How would something like that work? Well, that is an option. And in fact, there's, there's a level of uh, concern about enforcement uh, that uh, have, they brought the, the various data protection authorities together at a meeting in Vienna. They sat around the table and said, well, we've got to do something. And as a step um, to better enforcement, they've decided to have uh, what they call strategic important cases uh, that would be identified. And they would be, they would set like common deadlines for these cases. And they would have to be cases that affect a huge number of people and in multiple member states. Um, once those cases are identified, then the um, European Data Protection Board can identify, let's say, procedural problems and, and you know, try to smooth things over as best as they can. Verbogowski, uh he did mention this, but he said that, you know, much more is needed uh, to really sort things out. Um, I'm just going to throw out a couple of uh, examples of what they could do under the existing rules. It's not every day that I get to talk about individual articles of the GDPR, but here goes. So we have Article 64. Uh, so in that article, the uh, European Commission or the chair of the European Data Protection Board could request an opinion of the European Data Protection Board about a case. That's one springboard to get them involved. Another one is um, Article 66, which is an urgency procedure. Uh, this gives uh, you know, power to the EDPB to, to, to take decisions on an urgent matter. And then finally, the Article 65, which is the dispute resolution procedure. And that's only been used a handful of times, but it also is kind of the genesis of all these log jams. Um, it's been used... Uh, you know, twice before, and it's resulted in a lot of conflict within the board, um, and they want to streamline the procedures for that. So a couple examples of how things can be improved now, um, but I think we're, we're really at the beginning of the debate on all this. Well, Sam, has the ball started rolling on this? I mean, I wonder if there are any examples of cases where the European Data Protection Board is already playing a, a larger role. Uh, yes, so... Actually, just today, um, Bayouk, which is a, a sort of very large consumer rights group in the EU, um, it coordinated, com coordinated a complaint with some of its member organisations uh, in nine EU countries against Google. Uh, it's, a, it's a big complaint against Google, sort of uh, kind of goes to the heart of what Google does, and it's about its sign-up process. It says that uh, it, Google pushes people to accept sort of invasive data processing uh, and within that complaint, Beuk has asked the European Data Protection Board to, to basically assign it as a case of strategic importance, kind of under the protocol that was agreed in Vienna. Uh, it's the first time we think that the European Data Protection Board has been asked to do that. Um, and I mean, for all intents and purposes, it seems to meet those requirements. You know, it's, it's cross-border. There's, there's uh, many, well, so nine countries um, and Google is used all over the EU, obviously. 
It definitely involves a lot of people. Uh, it's definitely sort of complicated. Um, and so if it wasn't a strategically important case under, you know, in, in the in the eyes of the EDPB, it's hard to tell what would be. Um, and obviously that's something we'll be following up on and trying to find out if the European Data Protection Board will take it on. Uh, and if so, what does that mean in practice? So, Sam, can you give me just a little bit more uh, detail on that complaint by the um, the worst acronym in the European Union, which is the BEUC, the uh, the Consumer Association? Yeah, of course. So uh, it's it's about Google's sign up process, as I said, um, and essentially what they say is that Google makes it much easier to accept sort of really. Uh, invasive and large-scale data collection. So when you sign up to a Google account, which you have to do if you want to uh, use an Android phone or download an app from the Google Play Store, it takes one step, one click to accept Google's kind of preset settings. Uh, and Bayouk say that this, these settings, this thing that takes only one step, the, the surveillance system is an entryway into Google's surveillance system. If you want to choose settings that are uh, more privacy protecting. Uh, it takes, I think, five steps and 10 clicks. And it also involves looking at all sorts of complicated, vague, hard to understand information. Um, that's information that people like us that cover this quite regularly don't understand. And therefore, busy people who don't care or don't, you know, look at this sort of thing very often, there's absolutely no chance they'll they'll look at it and understand it. Uh, and so that is, Bayouk says, a breach of the GDPR uh, for various reasons to do with transparency and consent, but also this principle of data protection by de- default and design. Um, and yeah, Bayek says that Google's not adhered to those rules. Speaking of uh, busy people, Sam and Matthew, thank you so much for talking me through these issues today. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Sam Clark is based in MLEX's London offices from where he covers data privacy and security. Matthew Newman is our chief correspondent in Brussels. He covers data protection, privacy, telecoms, cybersecurity and artificial intelligence. Their analysis of this case is well worth checking out. It's available at mlexmarketinsight.com. That's M-L-E-X marketinsight.com. Just click on the News Hub tab for the very best of MLEX's reporting and analysis. You'll also find an archive of our podcasts, if that's how you get your fix of regulatory fares. Also, I should point out that we are recording this on Thursday, June the 30th, just in case you need to make sense of the references to something happening today that we made in our conversation just now. Thank you very much for your company. Coming up, the Biden administration places whistleblowers back at centre stage. And let me remind you that you can subscribe to MLEX Podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify and Stitcher. And please leave a review if you're interested in the podcast. It helps us spread the word. Now, the settlement reached with Brinks, which is a cash transit and money processing services company, marks the US Security and Exchange Commission's return to the whistleblower defence activism, which hasn't been seen since the Obama administration. The settlement directly addresses moves by companies that are designed to block employees reporting misconduct to the SEC. And how significant is it that the SEC appears to have rediscovered its mojo on this front? Well, quite significant, according to an analysis of this issue written by MLEX's Washington, D.C.-based senior correspondent Neil Rowland, 
who covers U.S. financial regulation. And he joins us right now. So, Neil, uh, let's start with last week's SEC charges against Brink's company over violations of the regulator's whistleblower rule. What did the complaint allege? Uh, James, the SEC alleged Brinks uh, impeded uh, whistleblower complaints to the SEC itself on its uh, non-disclosure agreements that were administered routinely to incoming employees. These uh, agreements said, if you go to a third party, which would include the SEC, you know, confidentially, without going through the company first, you have to go through Brinks first, you'd have to pay a $75,000 fee to Brinks, as well as any legal costs you might incur. So uh, ultimately, Brinks agreed to pay uh, a, a $400,000 fine to settle these SEC charges. Okay, so what is the SEC rule that we're dealing with here? What does it entail? So the SEC rule was enacted in 2011 to implement the Dodd-Frank Act, which was passed in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. It offers financial incentives for individuals to come forward to the SEC and report uh, financial securities violations by banks, by companies, by asset managers, by investment advisors. These financial incentives consist of if the SEC chooses to investigate a complaint, and ultimately uh, imposes a fine of a million dollars or more, the whistleblower gets between 10 and 30% of that award. So if the SEC were to fine a company or firm a million dollars, the whistleblower would get between 100,000 and 300,000 dollars. Now, the rule also forbids any companies or firms from impeding complaints on uh, whether it be on severance agreements, whether it be in training materials, whether it be in non-disclosure agreements. It also forbids retaliations against any whistleblowers. Okay, so why is this particular case so significant? Well, it's another signal, James, that the Biden administration is serious, much more serious than the Trump administration was about enforcing these rules. It's the fourth case brought by the Biden administration under SEC Chair Gary Gensler in less than a year and a half. Uh, The Trump administration under SEC Chair Jay Clayton filed just one case, just one case in its four years versus the four four cases filed by the uh, Biden administration, the SEC, for impeding the flow of uh, or any communications or for retaliation. And that compares. The Biden administration is much more comparable 
to the stance taken by the Obama administration, where the SEC under SEC Chair Mary Jo White filed nine cases. So you had nine cases under Obama, one case under Trump, that was a hiatus, and now four and climbing under Biden. All right. So speaking of the Trump administration, what was its uh, more general policy toward whistleblowers? What do we need to know about that and the comparison as a result with uh, what Biden is doing now? Well, the SEC uh, has both rulemaking and enforcement authority. Uh, Jay Clayton, the SEC chair uh, under Trump, came from uh, a Wall Street law background. He represented uh, Wall Street firms. And now that his tenure was over, he's returned to the same firm representing uh, Wall Street firms like Goldman Sachs and others. With regard to rulemaking, he proposed that the SEC be able to review, give an enhanced review, actually, uh, of any fines it imposed of $100 million or more for wrongdoing with the idea of reducing potentially payouts to whistleblowers in order to save money. So this obviously caused a furor among whistleblowers, but he could have brushed those off, right? The whistleblower community is not all that powerful, particularly under a Republican administration. However, he incurred stiff opposition from an unexpected foe, uh, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Charles Grassley, a fellow Republican and a whistleblower advocate who accused uh, Clayton of, quote, nickel and diming whistleblowers with this and being out of step with congressional intent in the Dodd-Frank Act of wanting to offer financial incentives to whistleblowers to step forward in order to thwart corporate crime. Now, this was blocked and ultimately what was finalized in the final months uh, of the Trump administration was a couple of more minor retrenchments by Clayton and which are now part of the rule. They were finalized, they're part of the act, including one that says, if another agency like the Justice Department is investigating the same allegation brought by a whistleblower and that other department offers under its whistleblower rules a smaller payout to the whistleblower, well, the SEC will step back and defer to the smaller payout. And so how has that policy changed or evolved uh, during the Biden administration? Well, Gensler takes a very different approach. He has a different background. Uh, He's a, a strong regulator, very aggressive regulator. During the Obama administration, He was the uh, head of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, which oversees derivatives. And he was the most aggressive regulator uh, in the Obama administration as far as implementing the Dodd-Frank Act. He also played a key role as an architect of the Dodd-Frank Act while he was part of the Obama administration. So that's a a, a very different stance and approach 
Now, he has already said he wants to change those two retrenchments that were undertaken and are now part of the SEC rules undertaken by Trump. The SEC has proposed reversing the Trump era retrenchments and restoring the SEC rules to what they had been since 2011. Neil, thank you so much for your reporting on this issue. It's great talking as always. Great, great talking to you as well, James. Thank you. Neil Rowland is an MLEC senior correspondent covering financial services from Washington, D.C., and his analysis of this issue is out from the paywall and ready for you to read and enjoy. Just head for our website, mlexmarketinsight.com. That's mlexmarketinsight.com. And click on the News Hub tab. And I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Thank you very much for your company. We do appreciate it. And we'll be back in your podcast feed next Friday at more or less the same time. From me, James Paniki, and everyone here at MLEX and LexisNexis, thank you for your company. Bye for now.